0: welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on earth. I'm Christy Rouault and I will be your host on today's episode. We will be chatting with a dear friend of mine, Mana Tugans, a researcher in polar law who is currently living in Norway and working with the North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission. We will be delving into marine protected areas and specifically exploring indigenous-led MPAs and the intricacies and transection of modern science and traditional knowledge, and their essential roles in policy. Mana tells stories of her adventures studying in Iceland, living in Norway, and all the wonderful people she's met along the way. Hope you enjoy today's show. Hi, Mana.
1: Hi, Christy, and thanks so much for having me today on the podcast. It's uh, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to talk about my research and just a bit about myself as well.
0: Yeah, it should be great. We like to start our podcast with what we call the icebreaker. So here's kind of where you get to explain a little bit about who you are and let our listeners you know, you can tell us how you got to to where you are in life.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. So I am originally French, and I am in uh, Norway at the moment in uh, the beautiful city of Tromsø. And uh, what brought me here, I think, is um, the studies that I have done. I have uh, been to the university in Iceland. Uh, I've studied the polar law. It's a master. I've done a master in law, and uh, yeah, that's basically how I ended up in the in the Arctic. And um, I mean, as far as I can remember, I, I have always been very sensitive uh, to wildlife and nature protection. And uh, I actually remember reading uh, this book that my that my father uh, gave me. It was about endangered species in the world. And I read it over and over. And so I, I really had this, this big connection to, to nature. And I was always very fascinated about the Arctic, especially Northern Lights. For me, that was kind of a phenomenon that I never thought I would see in my life. My interest uh, in, the, in polar law and in the polar region came quite late. It, it was pretty much five years ago, I could say. I had been before that into a French and German curriculum during my whole school education. I even started with a French and German bachelor's in law. So this is quite far from uh, from polar law. <laughs> but uh, my aim was to specialize in environmental law all along as I as I as far as I can remember. I wanted to do something connected yeah to to the environment and um, I thought uh, okay let's start somewhere. And then I enrolled in this uh, master in European and international law in France. And I remember having a course in, en- in environmental law there. But it was quite superficial, actually. We just went through the regulations and I, I thought that it could not be it. I mean, this would not be the way that I would like to do it and to contribute through my work or anything. So I, I felt like I had to to move and to maybe start looking for, for something else, because I, I still had this uh, feeling of contributing to something bigger than myself, or at least uh, have a sense of utility about what I'm, what I'm doing, and I started looking online. I remember finding this website where they were listing all the different masters in law, because of course I had a law background, so I, where I was looking okay, master's in law uh, in other countries. And uh, I was always fascinated by Scandinavia and Iceland. And I remember just uh, stumbling upon this polar law program. And I mean, I had never heard of that before, polar law. What is that? And also it's funny because still today, when I tell people that I studied polar law, they are like, did I understand correctly? Is that <laughs> a really a program? Or are you trying to tell me something else? that They are not really... Sure that I meant polar, like the poles, Arctic Antarctica. Mm-hmm. When I read it, I, it immediately piqued my interest. So yeah, when I read the description, I fell fell in love <laughs> with the program, and I I knew I had to go there. And fortunately enough, the program ran ran this year, and I could attend. Yeah, and maybe I can just explain quickly what it is because <laughs> so many people have mm-hmm. been I uh, have been asking. <laughs> so so it's basically. Um, the study of the legal environment and administrative practices of the antarctic and antarctica that touches upon international law national law and also regional law and it is connected uh, for example to i mean to any issue that would be connected to these two regions so it could be for example sovereignty issues or the rights of indigenous people or environmental law we also have now shipping So yeah, it it is very, very broad. I mean, enrolling in this program, I think it has been probably the best decision I have ever taken for myself because it has brought me so much. I think not only professionally, but also personally, I have learned so much from experts in their fields. And I've also met uh, incredible people, very various people with different backgrounds. And I mean, it it created opportunities that I never thought Mm -hmm. I would have. I mean, just for example, meeting you in uh, South Korea at the Korea mm-hmm. Arctic Academy, There was I never thought I would go there for an academy or just being interviewed today in this podcast. This is uh, something, <laughs> this is really something crazy.
0: Yeah, it seems you have, I really like how you have a story of how you got into polar law and it it seemed like something, you know, almost intrinsic brought you to the north. And you hear that a lot with Arctic scientists and social scientists and researchers that they had something that really drew them there that maybe they didn't see coming.
1: Yeah, exactly. Until I was there, I didn't really see it coming. And ever since I'm there, I am i don't want to leave anymore. <laughs> I want to stay in the Arctic. It, it, it is my home now. I mean, I definitely feel that my place is here at the moment and that uh, it is what I want to do. I mean, Arctic related research and, and I mean, especially now in Tromsø, I think it's such a beautiful place. Can you tell us about your current role and where you work and where you live? Yeah, sure. I live, uh, I live in Tromsø. As I said, it's it's an island. I think I like islands. <laughs> also in Iceland, I mean, it's an island. Just now, I'm looking at the mountains through my windows, so it's really nice. Just to go back a bit. So, and I'm, I'm I'm in Tromsø since uh, July last year. I was actually supposed to arrive in March. Then you know, COVID happened, and I remember I was. I was trying. I was trying to come to Tromsø, but uh, well, fate decided. <laughs> Otherwise, because I even went to the airport with all my suitcases, and they denied me access because I was not Norwegian, so I could not uh, pass the borders. <laughs> and it was it was pretty unreal. I mean, I didn't yeah. thought it would be possible. Uh, yeah, to be denied access, but. Yeah, so I had a lockdown in France and started my internship at NAMCO, at the North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission, mostly from France. And when they opened the borders again, I remember it was 15th of July, 2020. Yeah, the 16th of July, I was in Norway. <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> I'm not missing my chance again. And I mean, I really, really wanted to go and I was missing the Arctic so much. I had been in France now for, for some time, in between my, my master's thesis And the internship, and it was longer than expected, but I'm so happy to be back. So I started with this internship that lasted until January, and I have been offered a short-term contract. So at the moment, I am scientific and communication assistant at NAMCO. And I mean, what I really like is that it gives me another perspective also about what I about the Arctic and about what I have been doing because it is an intergovernmental organization. So it's also interesting to see how countries work together for a certain issue. Uh, NAMCO is um, an organization for the conservation and sustainable use of marine mammals, but it targets only uh, cetaceans, whales, dolphins and porpoises, and also seals and walruses. So no otters and our bears yeah so it, it gives uh, recommendations it issues recommendations on a scientific basis to the countries that are still hunting marine mammals so the Faroe islands norway iceland and greenland and yeah, it's really interesting to be into this process and to see how uh, science and policy are interacting and i think this is really something that i wanted to to have a look at or to dig deeper, because as a social scientist, having a background in law, I'm usually more on the other side, where I, I am looking at policies. And also within my research that I have done for my master thesis, I mean, it's crucial to have both fields walk hand in hand, because I think it you produce better advice, and also it is probably easier than to to put in place and to implement uh, when both are coordinating. So this is the yeah. main task that, I, that I'm that i doing at the moment. And uh, I am also doing a bit of uh, freelance research at the Norwegian Center for Law of the Sea. I'm working mm-hmm. with a researcher, professor actually, because he got the, a professorship, uh, Vito de Lucia. So I'm, I was uh, working on diverse project with him connected to the ongoing negotiations for the adoption of an international legally binding instrument on the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity in areas beyond <laughs> national jurisdiction or otherwise it's a called <laughs> yes it is such a long title but to make it short it is just called the bbnj negotiation okay i've been doing a few research assistant or editing for him and yeah and i've also had the opportunity to write a blog post for they have a blog and close the, the Norwegian Center for the Sea that will be published very soon so I'm also very excited about about that oh um, that's yeah. great yeah so make sure to look for it and uh, read it uh, yeah it is, um, it is going to be about the role of indigenous traditional knowledge in the conservation of marine biodiversity in the Arctic of course in the context of the BBNJ negotiations
0: okay. maybe can you tell us a bit about you know on a broader scale how are areas in the arctic protected and what is a marine protected area
1: yeah sure from um conservation standpoint you have um, area based management tools that include marine protected areas i mean if i if i look at the Arctic Ocean. These tools are increasingly seen as a valuable way to protect uh, biological diversity, but also the integrity of seas and uh, and oceans. And it is also increasingly being used in the Arctic because, I mean, we are all aware, it has been repeated several times, that uh, the Arctic is a region that is mostly or greatly impacted by climate change. And it's not only ecosystems that are impacted, but also the people, depending on these ecosystems, including indigenous peoples and local communities. So if I should uh, define protected areas, well, there are actually no single definition that is universally agreed upon, but a broad definition would be that it is an area-based management tool. So in other words, it's a geographically defined area that is uh, designated and regulated with the purpose of achieving long-term conservation of uh, nature. It also wants to achieve the conservation of its associated ecosystem and cultural values. So it's it's a tool that takes a lot of things into account and that is normally not just used for Conservation, like the landscape, conservation mm-hmm. of the landscape. And yeah, and think, it's a uh, quite uh, holistic way of, of thinking of protecting an area. Yeah.
0: Rather than, as you say, uh, to put this into context, correct me if I'm wrong, but they wouldn't, you know, these wouldn't necessarily be areas, and especially in the Arctic, wouldn't be areas where you just wouldn't fish at all. No, yeah. you, you would be able to protect the local way of
1: being. At least that, that is the the—the goal, and I think this is how it should be, because of course, in the past, protected areas on land or even in the sea have been used kind of as a way of assessing sovereignty, I would say, and to conserve resources just for the state's enjoyment, or for people's enjoyment. And if you look at some national parks that have been established, I mean, it still happens today in Africa, for example, or in Asia, but it has happened everywhere that they were just evicting the people that were living there, and they were just pushing them out. But I think it is very important that we are not taking this way anymore, because you cannot really achieve great conservation if you do not include the people that are living in this area. And I mean, they also have great knowledge that should be used to protect any given area. And I think this is also why it's important to establish and design protected areas that are taking into account any kind of knowledge. Is it a so-called scientific knowledge or Western knowledge or traditional indigenous knowledge? Because it is as valuable or it should be on on an equal footing it should not be like yeah we use maybe scientific and we will consult you if we if we need to so i think it's it's very important that we manage to achieve a more equitable and fair and just system because i mean the arctic is i think it's a great region and of course we are most advanced in some regions we also have the arctic council where arctic people especially indigenous people, are given a place at the table as permanent participants, but still they're not states and they don't have the same decision-making power, even though it's their territory, actually, and it has been for millennia. Can you explain to us,
0: maybe you need to explain the Arctic Council to get to this, but in the current setting, how are the indigenous people heard? And when we compare our traditional knowledge versus our modern western knowledge how do those end up at the same table and are the indigenous people listened to
1: of course it is very dependent i mean it's a case by case you could say it depends because there are some cases that i think some good practice cases that i have been looking into for my master thesis just to give you maybe a bit of background during my my master thesis research, I have been looking at the rights of indigenous peoples and the establishment of marine protected areas in the traditional Inuit territory in Canada and Greenland. And my aim was to explore the relationship between the rights of indigenous people and environmental protection. And... More precisely, to address the question to know whether the rights of Indigenous peoples are being fulfilled when it comes to the establishment, management and control of marine protected areas. So I wanted to focus on case studies and see how it is done in practice. And I focused on three case studies. So namely the Talurutjup-Imanga National Marine Conservation Area, located in Lancaster Sound, Nunavut, the Imapivut Marine Plan off the coast of Labrador in Nunatiavut, and the Management Plan in the Peak Yalesur which is a shared area between Canada and Greenland. And I wanted to see whether there is potential attached to the creation of this marine protected area to fulfill both the protection of the environment and also the fulfillment of the rights of the Inuit people. In these cases, it was very, I mean, it was very positive to see that uh, Inuit participation had been done since, uh, or had been highlighted, and it was really important from the beginning onwards. And even in some cases, it was an Inuit or an indigenous initiative uh, to create these area-based management tools. So in these particular cases, it was very promising to see that they're sitting at the same table. And even I'm going to take the Talurujup Imanga National Marine Conservation Area as an example. So the goal was to, to create this area in order to, to protect the marine life. And it actually ended up being or becoming Canada's largest marine protected area. So very impressive if you think cool. about it. It was really, very interesting to see that it is a cooperation between the Inuit voice and the Canadian government.
0: Yeah, I'm impressed to hear that that cooperation exists, especially in a place that, as a Canadian, I don't even know about, which speaks volumes to how not in the spotlight these areas are. I'm also quite impressed that you can pronounce them all. You sound like you've
1: practiced your Inuit. <laughs> yeah, I practice every day a little bit. <laughs> No, but yeah, maybe I, I'm not even sure I pronounced them correctly, but um, I'm doing my best. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. It sounds uh, good to me. And I mean, it was, so in this case, in the Tzadurutiupe Imanga, it was also very important for them to, to collect Inuit traditional knowledge. So you could really see that there was a cooperation both between the government and the association representative of the Inuit uh, in the region but also that they would use traditional knowledge and so-called Western knowledge on an equal footing,
0: mm-hmm. you could
1: say. Because, of course, I think our science is maybe sometimes a bit, or the way we do science, it's influenced by colonialism and by the way that powerful states or dominant states have been building the world. And I think we need to change something In this regard, because traditional knowledge really helps understand how the ecosystem in an area is connected to the community. And it definitely provides information that science cannot tell. Mm -hmm. I remember also hearing a story about how scientists would count whales and they didn't know, they found out that a species was nearly uh, depleted. Whereas, in fact, they just didn't know that whales were swimming under the ice. Uh-huh. And, the, and the indigenous people knew and they were then telling the scientists that they were wrong because uh, the whales were actually still there so this is maybe just an example so cooperation is so important it seems like
0: in my research and in my experience observing other researchers we do so much at our western universities in silos and that's why it's really refreshing to hear that your role is so multidisciplinary. But not to mention, we can work in silos between biology and and geology and not connect the dots there, but it just seems so it's on such a great magnitude when we're not accounting for this knowledge that's been passed down for generations that goes so far beyond what we could collect in a short amount of time. And it really, I think it, it does seem like maybe there's a positive spin to this. It's been a very dark past, but it seems like those voices are being heard more. Their knowledge is being valued.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that, I mean, definitely progress is being made, you know? And even though I'm maybe not the most qualified to talk about it, also because I am not indigenous myself, from what I see, many countries are aware that it is something they need to change. But sometimes in practice, it is a bit more difficult because you have some conflicting interests between different parties. It is sad that sometimes... We don't choose the same interests and some are thinking that one is maybe more important than the other. And for this reason, I think it's also very important to create a dialogue and not to shout the or to shut the voice of anyone, especially of people who have been living on these territories for so long and that we that have been basically colonized by some some others. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you you said something earlier that I really liked and that I want to highlight is in many cases, if there's two sides of the coin and when we're creating a protected area that the indigenous people are often on the opposite side of the conservationists and maybe opposite, maybe is a, a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I really think that's important to recognize that the way we think of protecting an area is often to just leave it all together. Can you comment a bit more about what the indigenous, what kinds of things that they might be opposing in a conservation effort that is just trying to stop all hunting and all fishing and to leave the area altogether in the way that we see in a lot of our national parks.
1: Yeah, I mean, 10% of the population in the Arctic are indigenous peoples. So it's quite a lot. And uh, if you think about it, a commonality between all of them is that they depend on a rich di- biodiversity and a healthy environment to maintain their lifestyles. So when you tell them, tell these communities that we are going to close an area for conservation purposes because the species is declining, it feels unfair to them because, of course, it's not... The fault of a small community in the Arctic, if the species is depleted, it's mostly the fault of, well, we are consuming more and we are polluting more. But definitely, I think that the problem is not starting there. So they don't want to accept governance from far away, from people who have no idea how it is to live there, from people who are not aware what it is to to live there and that I have no idea about how they live. If you tell them that we are closing an area for conservation reason, when actually the only thing that they are depending on is hunting a species or fishing a certain species, it is very difficult to accept for sure. So I think it's very important to stress that for this reason, if you want to have also efficient governance you need to have it occur on a local level you cannot just do the same as you would do on a on a global level because there are some particular issues that only indigenous people know about and mm-hmm. if you look on a legal point of view they have cultural rights. They have the rights to lands, territories, and resources. They have the right to self-determination. Even though these rights are very recent, and even the modern human rights system is quite recent, but the rights of indigenous peoples are even more recent. It is important that these rights are acknowledged and respected. Mm -hmm. Have you found, you said your thesis was focused on
0: these three areas in Greenland and Canada. And I'm wondering if now that you've spent some time in Norway, do you think there's a difference just because of how geographically in Canada we're 2000 kilometers away from protected areas where the decisions are often being made in the south? Whereas in Norway, much of that governance is, you know, the Sami people are living quite nearby and really, in, you know, in all of the same regions as where much of the governance is going on. Do you think that has promoted a more holistic way of thinking?
1: Well, I'm not a specialist about uh, Sami rights and even about Inuit rights. And I think some of the indigenous peoples, the respective indigenous people could answer this question better. But from what I have seen, I don't think that being close or closer brings a more respectful view of the others. I think that, or at least it seems that the issues are the same a bit everywhere. I hear in different meetings that uh, indigenous peoples are raising the same issue that they want to be considered, that they want not just to be consulted, but to to have a a meaningful uh, expression or a meaningful voice of what they're thinking. Even just if you look on the United Nations level, They don't have uh, international participation, even though some decisions that are taken at the international level are going to impact their territories directly.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there pieces of protecting the Arctic from a marine setting that really aren't being considered yet or, or aren't being properly protected because of perhaps economic interests or industrial
1: interests? Of course, we have the Central Arctic Ocean. It's a big discussion at the moment, also connected to the ongoing BBNJ negotiations. And I know there is—I mean, this is also something I touched upon in my research—that there is this wish of create a Pan-Arctic network of marine protected areas. Mm. And uh, this is a project that is supported by PAEM, the working group of the Arctic Council on the, the protection of Arctic, the Arctic marine environment. And also CAF, Conservation of arctic Fauna and flora, And I think WWF is also on board. Mm. Or at least I think WWF, they, they have maybe a separate project, but it's also connected to creating a network of protected areas.
0: And so the point of connecting these areas would be to ensure that you're not depleting a fish source here at, while, while your next-door neighbours are, are doing everything they can to save it. Is that the intention?
1: I mean, it has been proven scientifically that creating networks of protected areas is maybe more valuable on the conservation level, or that it, mm-hmm. it it enables achieving greater conservation goals if you have this because you have this connectivity between different spaces, and of course, when you have migratory species like whales, for example, or birds, even you know that are depending on on different fish species, for example. So. It is important not to just protect one area because the country is attached to it. Because in the end, we only have one ocean. And also, now that we are experiencing climate change, I think the boundaries are maybe bound to move on marine protected areas, or at least they should be. Because, well, if you want to protect a given ecosystem, And uh, it is impacted by climate change, for instance. Maybe the species that you want to protect will move northwards and you will need to reconsider that. But for the network, I think it is also a matter of connecting all Arctic uh, states together because the Arctic region is quite known for its cooperation or its special cooperation also within the Arctic Council which is a fora for cooperation, especially on environmental issues. And yeah, I think the project is to create this network in order to have a fair and just Arctic that is protecting its rich biodiversity. I think it's really interesting that,
0: you know, I was quite amazed by the Arctic Council when I first learned about it, how there's this organization that, Somehow it seems so peaceful in the Arctic and when historically we think of the Arctic as maybe quite a tumultuous place where, you know, we had the Cold War and, you know, many countries later, you know, colonizing at a very late time. Can you tell us maybe about how it does seem like the Arctic Council has, has a very peaceful relationship between countries that we may not otherwise think of as collaborating
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean, it's definitely one of a kind forum. I mean, I think no other region in the world has uh, such an intergovernmental forum promoting uh, cooperation and interaction between states. And also, as I I mentioned before, it's quite uh, unique in the fact that uh, it has Indigenous Peoples organization as permanent participants at the table, which I think it's very important to give this human face to the Arctic because there, as I said, there are also so many indigenous people living in the Arctic, especially the the Arctic Council is focusing on the issues of uh, sustainable development and environmental protection in the Arctic. And it is a soft law instrument, which means that it cannot issue legally binding decisions and also there are a lot of topics that are off the grid, which is also maybe the reason why it works so well. For example, military questions are out of the question. They're not discussing that. The mm-hmm. countries are independent in this uh, in this area. But I think it works so well, mostly because countries are coming together to discuss issues that are trans-boundaries, that are common to all of them. And I think it's very inspiring to see that these countries are willing to, to collaborate together to answer these questions.
0: Yeah, and we, we don't need to get into Antarctic law, but I do think it's really important to recognize that it's much easier to collaborate in Antarctica because it was no one's home before. And I, I really think that's what makes Arctic collaboration so impressive is you have so many different voices and, you know, real boundaries that you're crossing. And I think that makes yeah. it quite an impressive feat to agree
1: yeah, exactly. And I mean, and you have new actors coming as well in the Arctic, which is going to be very interesting in the future as well, because this region is so interesting to many states for different reasons, states that are <laughs> non-Arctic states, you could say, that are that are very interested and that are observer to the Arctic Council, for example. Or I could mention the fisheries agreement that has been signed and established to create or to establish a moratorium on fishing in the central arctic ocean there are arctic states that have signed it but also non-arctic states like uh, japan i think south korea has signed it as well and uh, and others so definitely mm-hmm. i think uh, arctic collaboration is going to take a new turn in the, mm-hmm. in the next years mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah and you and I met in
0: South Korea at an at an Arctic Academy. So I mean, that says a lot about how much yeah, how much collaboration there's going on in, in states that we don't think of as having an interest in the Arctic. But what I, I also found in my field, there's just such strong research coming out of places like South Korea and and China. And, and they, you know, they have such an important role to play in how we develop these areas. And I think it's really important that their voices are heard perhaps in a you know a very different light than than we're taking into account the voices of the people who live there but i certainly think like you say it, it will be so integral in in the next decades with a changing climate and a opening seas
1: yeah definitely i think we need to adapt because the melting sea ice in the arctic is not only a regional pro- problem it's also a global problem with the sea level rising mm-hmm. for example it's something that is going to touch the whole world. So of course, I mean, the voices of anyone who has an interest should be heard. But yeah, I agree with you. The voices of the people living there should be heard in priority.
0: I'm fascinated by these marine protected areas and that, you know, when I first learned about them, I, it just took me a bit aback that as a Canadian, I can know so little about these areas that are massive. There's a big part of, of the country and, um, and so much effort has gone into deciding how they're, they're governed and how they're protected. And so I, I think it's important that the general public, especially in these Arctic nations, really understand better what's going on and how these international legalities are taking place.
1: Yeah, definitely. And when you say that they are huge, it's true. And it also raises the question to know, how do you manage such a big area? Because of course, it's one thing to establish a marine protected area, to delimit its boundaries, to write everything on paper, to have uh, the monitoring um, in your mind. But I think it's also such a challenge to have an efficient marine protected area. And this is also something that needs to to be stressed And also the reason why it's so important to include the people that are living closest to the marine protected area, because they are the ones that are going to monitor the area and see that nothing is going out of the management plan, for example, Mm -hmm. because you don't want to think of an area and then end up with a so-called paper park that just looks good on paper, you know, Mm -hmm. that just seems to be so efficient on paper but then in the end it's just the boundary in the ocean and it doesn't achieve anything yeah yeah and there is definitely the risk with that because if you compare it to terrestrial areas it's maybe harder to have a grasp of what is going on in the ocean than it is on on land in your Mm -hmm. in the country for example yeah
0: Switching gears here. You've lived in some of what I would call the most beautiful places on earth. Do you have any stories that you want to tell? Maybe a, a particular memory or or something special about the Arctic that, in the the natural environment, that has caught you and and made you fonder of the Arctic.
1: I could tell you a hundred stories, I think. <laughs> but uh, I agree with you. These are probably the most beautiful places. <laughs> If I had to choose to go on holiday somewhere it would be somewhere in the Arctic. I don't want to go anywhere else. (laughs) So the story I want to tell maybe it's connected to the people I have met because they are also the soul of of this place and I've met so many incredible people in the Arctic and that have motivated me and pushed me further or taught me uh, many things. So the little background would be that when I arrived in Iceland and I started the polar law program. I remember entering the classroom, and we were really not many students because it was not so well known. And it was also a special year. Usually, it would run every other year, and this year, it exceptionally it run. And I felt the luckiest to have the opportunity to to join the program. And I remember seeing this person who looked quite older than all the other students. He was in his 70s, you know? And I thought, oh, this must be the teacher. And uh, and then the teacher came in and I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> it's very intriguing. And I, I learned that uh, he was a student as well. He's called Gudmundur Tullinus. He's Icelandic. And uh, I mean, I immediately came friends friend also with another fellow called Sarah Pötter. And we are still a great friend today. She's uh, from Germany. And Gudmundur, he's is uh, German-speaking. So both of us uh, and I, we became friends with Gudmundur quite quickly. And I know he was such a kind-hearted person, you know, and very unusual student. So it's, it's interesting, because we, we kind of developed a family-like bond with him. And he's such a an inspiring person. He has been a naval architect for most of his life, but he has been on so many adventures as well. And he wears several hats. He has been on an expedition to Greenland, you know, and he he's also still a tourist guide in in Akare. Well, at the moment, it's maybe not so flourishing. But uh, the fact that he's still doing that, and also that he would be studying polar law in his seventies, I mean, I would. My grandparents are about the same age, but I would never imagine them doing that. So definitely an inspiring person. So to come to the story in question, I remember that So because he's a guide, he has this huge uh, four-wheel drive truck. I mean, I have never seen a car so big, to be honest. (laughs) You had to climb inside and kind of, yeah, you, you feel really high on the road when you're in it. He always took us on some trips and some adventures and showed us around the beautiful places of, uh, of Iceland. And I mean, Iceland has been my real first encounter with the Arctic. So of course, I I keep a very fond memory of, of it. And yeah, and I remember this particular time when we were visiting my sister that was also uh, living in Iceland at this moment. She was working um, on a farm not too far from Akre. And uh, it was such a beautiful day, but it was freezing cold. It was even so cold that the rear windows were freezing from the inside. <laughs> so the plan was to to pick up my sister and go to one of the many beautiful uh, hot pots that you can find in Iceland. And yeah, so, so far so good. And I remember that uh, Sarah was driving. So we took a bit of an off-road part to get closer to the hot hotpots. And uh, it had been a bit stormy, I think, the day before. So that the bumps in the road were actually smoothened and it created a straight field of snow. And I mean, the view was very beautiful. But at one point, we just didn't move anymore. The car was kind of stuck in the snow and the the chassis, I think you call that, when the car, the, the part that is on the road uh yeah. the tires yeah so it got stuck and we couldn't move the massive truck i mean the one that you would think would take you anywhere was completely stuck and it was resting on the snow so we could not move forward or backward and yeah and i looked at Sarah, and we were like oh no and good he <laughs> was with us this time and he was just oh, laughing laughing at us like oh you got stuck yeah and we were like oh no what do we do now so we went outside of the car and tried to find a solution. And of course, we didn't bring any shovels. So remember to bring shovels when you travel when it's snowy, because it can be always useful. And yeah, and my sister went out to the nearest farm to try and find some help. But yeah, no one was there. Of course, the farm was completely abandoned. So after a few hours, when she came back, Gudmundur actually took his phone out and he just called a number. And yeah, he was super patient and not stressing. And I and I don't know, I really cherished this moment because we had we were talking and we were just seeing how the day was going by. And you had this pink sky, beautiful the Icelandic horses in the background, and just these huge snow fields and. Goodminder called this number, and just after a few minutes, it was just done. He had called someone that would get us out of here, uh, so no problem at all. Yeah, it was just, uh, I don't know, such a, such a fun memory to, to think about uh, about that. The plan was not uh, fulfilled, but uh, it was such a great day. And also, it taught me to live by the Icelandic motto, which is Fettaredast, meaning that everything is going to be all right. I heard that a lot when I was in Iceland and I think this is definitely something that I try to to live by because it's so I think it's important yeah not to to stress or to panic because if you also take things uh, slowly and peacefully it usually goes better and I think that the Arctic really resonates with me in this sense also if you just look at the environment it's just it goes slowly, but in the summer when it flourishes, you have this beautiful green grass and uh, you can have super long winters. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah, I I find that it's so inspirational to, to get to know someone who's that old and, and yet so motivated for life. Yeah, I think that's quite beautiful. I also found in the Arctic, I always try to describe to people when it's all snowy and, and barren landscapes how peaceful the sound is that muffled snowy kind of sound that is, is hard to describe but it, it does it goes along well with that that uh, icelandic motto
1: yeah definitely i mean it's so pretty and the colors i understand why i'm so in love with this place when i think about it yeah that's lovely mm-hmm.
0: Well, this is the opportunity in, in our podcast, we like to call it the polar plug, where we give you a chance to to speak about something, anything that you please, if
1: you have anything that you'd, you'd like to tell, talk about. I want to really acknowledge all the great people that I've met in this incredible journey, this Arctic journey. And as I, as I told you and also all these amazing women that I have uh, met and um, I think also in, in science in general and, uh, and in the Arctic, it has been for me very very powerful to meet all these all these people and they have definitely changed my perception on, on many things and uh, it made me realize that uh, that I'm, so much more capable than I thought, or that I have much much more power uh, in me than than I thought. I uh, also, I think this is maybe a good opportunity to mention the project called Women of the Arctic, or it's also called Plan A, and there is no Plan B in the Arctic. And it is led by uh, two uh, amazing and inspiring women and researchers, Gosha Smizek and uh, Tanya Priot. And yeah, and the aim is to raise awareness, support, and maintain a focus on on women's and gender-related issues in the Arctic, because of course there are also gender inequalities uh, in the Arctic. Yeah, I think it's it's important to to mention that as well. And I mean, I think it's so important that women support each other, because you know sometimes I I feel like it is so easy to be in competition with with each other. Also because, first of all, it's quite a competitive field. I mean science in general social science or natural science but also because of the way that maybe we we are brought up uh that we are always comparing ourselves but at the end of the day i I feel like it brings so much more to to be supportive towards one another and we do we do get further and i mean i have learned so much and i take so much from these persons and I feel very grateful to, to have been surrounded and still being surrounded by all these great persons. And even just my colleagues now at the moment at Namco that are all three amazing women. I think, Oh, it makes me happy to, to have the opportunity to learn from them and from all these these women that I've met. I mean, they're all unique in their own way. And, uh, I think that uh, definitely the the people you meet they kind of shape you. I think you realize that only maybe a bit after, but I take great ex- inspiration from them, and I want to to take this opportunity to to thank them for for being who they are and for being in my life. Great. Well, thank you so
0: much for your time and and for sharing your stories and your experience with us on the show.
1: Yeah, you're most welcome. I mean, it was my greatest pleasure to be here today with all of you.
0: That brings us to the end of today's episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to Polar Times on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to contact us with any feedback, We'd welcome you to email us at thesearepolartimes at gmail.com and you can also contact APEX on twitter at polar underscore research. Thanks again to Mana, our guest on today's show. Please note that whilst this is an APEX production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of APEX or any other host institution mentioned.